Bookworm Games, episode 43, A Place to Belong. We begin today with a burial, and we'll end with a resurrection. The corpse, caked with blood, steeped in sewer slime, stiffly laid out, unnamed, unknown, save as a red monster, rough letters scrawled into gore, gouged by a dying battler's nails, now this beast, beaten, gazed in rest, upward, as if seeking stars in the steam, while Satan chipped chunks of cement aside and dug without shirking, the shovel blade borrowed from the nuns, hefted rubble blackened by the riots, turned dry earth aside. The rooftop gardener gathered his soil not far from this spot, had suggested he bear the body there, though he'd stop short of helping, and its guilty wielder recalled the grips he'd used before he put up his sword for good. The hole hollowed out, shallow but sufficient. He placed the human remains in that city ground, grotesque as the grin it wore, lopsided like its bony claw, bandy as its shanks were. The doctor saw its soul was still in better straits than some of his other patients' parlous states. That, of course, is Satan burying the body of Redrum. I forgot to mention at the end of last time, but I did add it in the caption to the show. That name's origin, of course, comes from the Shining classic horror flick. He was the toughest boss fight so far. And he's distinguished as well by leaving remains, which Satan takes the trouble to bury out of courtesy, we're told. I can imagine this is partly to prevent other battlers, friends of those killed, from desecrating the body, or from the profiteers trying to bring it galumphing back as a trophy, like the scales and fangs and other merchandise you can sell at the B&Fo counter. A brief, tough talk with Rico sees him leave your party for now. Having fought by his side through the sewers, it should be obvious that he is far from invincible, and that's reinforced by the wound to his arm. But still, Faye is dubious at the prospect of facing him in the arena. He says, somewhat gnomically, Etiquette dictates a true fight. It's something of a departure for Faye, as this sort of noble veneer to violence is what the game has shown us time and again to be deceptive. But whatever Rico represents, that includes just that tough-as-nails nobility, and even Faye seems to recognize it. We do return to the arena, this time undergoing three battles in one day for the semifinal. Hatamoto, Firewheel, and Silver Star, your opponents this time, are a little less anthropomorphic than most gears, more like Battlebot-looking in their design. Still, Faye has his doubts, even after triumphing over them. He's got pre-Battle Blues, which Hammer's determined to dispel. He makes a reference to the Memory Cube, which is a little suspicious, given that we last heard the Gazelle Elders using its information to track him. We know the Kislev Committee, given its face in Rue Cohen, is similarly gathering data on Faye and the other battlers. Perhaps we should suspect 
Hammer's duplicitousness cuts both ways. All these middlemen aside, a more immediately significant interlude occupies us next for the championship match. We see that over Hammer's protestations, Satan has come to lend his expertise with the final tune-ups to Veltal. The chilling music, which we last heard, I think, in Nissan when Sigurd was disclosing his and Satan's backstory before the disastrous mission that parted Faye and Bart for the time being, that creepy music plays now, evoking the creepiness of being all alone in the vast gear hangar and the anxiety of another fateful undertaking. Their discussion of the available parts despairs of finding an answer to Rico's superior gear, and this provides the perfect cue for wise man. Rather groff-like, he materializes at the top of the struts above, but then he teleports down with a swirl of his blue cape to Faye's level and challenges him to a fight at once. Taken aback, Faye weathers a few rounds of chi beams, but seems to be giving as good as he gets for a change. You can land blows and heal every other round or so to stay in the fight, at least right up until Wise Man doubles his damage, calling you a wimp, and then lands what Faye recognizes as his own technique, the one he finished off Ramses with. The brawl is meant to be an illustration of what to do when faced with a difference in mass, namely to rely upon timing, to chip away with ether bullets until you see your way to, as Wiseman puts it, a final strike at your opponent's fissure. Even more surprisingly, Wiseman sticks around long enough for Faye, apparently unhurt by this latest baptism by fire, to ask him about how he knows his father and why they fight with the same style. Only when Faye asks his father's name, his name is Khan, does wise man seem to realize that he's lost his memory since that night he arrived in Lahan, and he provides his version of the events that led up to it. As fellow students, he and Khan studied under an unnamed master, which led to Faye's father becoming an officer in the military of an unnamed country. There he met Karen, beautiful as a flower in full bloom. Satan's explanation of this bit of poetry is much more to the point than when he expounded at length upon Nisan's angels and the portrait of Sophia. And such a turn of phrase should make us wonder, if we haven't already, just what wise man's feelings were towards Karen and about the marriage that followed. He says he left on a journey to get stronger. This insistent motif, endlessly varied, pitting love against power under all these different guises. And he was told that she died. And then, in a letter, he learned that their child, Faye, had been taken by Graf, who, like Khan, had recognized Faye's extraordinary powers. This brings us up to the night of the storm. As he puts it, it was thrown at sheer rage, and the nightmare combat that we've seen some glimpses of. Wiseman was not present for the actual bloodshed, he says, 
but arrived later to find Khan and Fei wounded and Graf gone, the explanation for which is again less than completely satisfactory. Still more unsettling, he says Khan then followed his foe at once, leaving his child with the masked man. Fei does not seem to remark upon any of the problems with this story. His attention is taken up with the connection to Graf, whom wise man marvels that he should have seen several times now and still be surviving. He can only conclude this must mean his father is indeed dead. And so, wise man resolves to go after Graf. His last bit of information for Fay is the name of his father's country. Again, it's delivered in a poetic way. The floating land, which tries to hide behind a wall, protected as if to conceal their failure, that is Shivat. What a mysterious person, Satan avers in his delightful way. He is interested to learn that Fay has seen him once before at the Ave tournament. And as we noted, Satan was the one who masterminded his participation there. And he should remember him from the final. And the parallels between the events in Bledavik and Nortun, between the battling above ground and the exploration of the waterways below both capital cities. Parallels here are quite striking. We might remember that Bart is supposed to have sunk to the bottom of the Sea of Sand. And extending the metaphor, whereas Solaris and its citizens literally float above it all, this puts Shevat in an interesting position, for it at once floats and is hidden behind a wall, concealing some failure far from proud. So wise man disappears once more, blowing in the wind of the spirit he's tried to instill in Fay, and it's time to tackle Ricardo Banderas, who, like most playable characters in Xenogears, is pretty mysterious himself. Whether you take wise man's lesson about mass to heart, or just keep button mashing, it shouldn't be too difficult to prevail in the championship bout. Feeling suitably grand as a best of five rounds. After Faye's shocking upset victory, the champ's sycophantic henchmen complain in the very same terms Faye and his supporters were bemoaning their fate in before the match. Ironically, about unfair differences in parts. And they're right, of course, if we remember those black boxes stowed above uh, Weltal, but those didn't come into play this time. Rico refuses to hear it. He refuses Faye's olive branch about his wounds. He takes off. Hammer's clear, too, the ratty merchant exults, but the scene fades at once, as if to follow Rico, rather than Faye for the time being. We see him addressing his gear, Stier, the bull, Taurus. And perhaps it's the purity of his determination to get him that makes it so that Graf does not appear in his usual sinister way to offer him the power, though superficially this might look like the sort of situation where he would normally do so. Anyhow, we're left to wonder what Rick goes up to. We shift scenes 
to the dock beneath Fatima Castle, where Ellie and her men gawk at the lineup of ether-guided vessels that it will be their mission to escort. We'll see them taking off momentarily, like huge earrods, so that we are set up to be in awe of the individual who is powerful enough to command them all. This Dominia, which appropriately enough is her name, a woman who clearly knows Ellie. In appearance, she actually looks similar to Sigurd. Not Sigmund, but Sigurd, Bart's second-in-command. And in fact, she seems ashamed to own that she is a surface-dweller by birth. Perhaps in order to compensate, she shows off by telling her subordinates the restricted info that their target is to be Kislev's ancient generator. In passing, we might also be able to put it together that the gatekeeper mentioned by the elders must be whatever was in that box delivered by the masked woman to Kaiser Sigmund, which will allow passage through Solaris's gate defenses. Once more, from Ellie's perspective, this must be especially galling. We hear a military superior spouting the hateful rhetoric about the lambs, which she, Ellie, by her recognition of Faye's humanity and their sameness, has learned to be false. Dominia is adamant, though. Any amount of destruction, even a purge, is justified for her to prove herself. The vicious logic of Ramses's meritocracy is on display. And once again, there's these allusions to Yugen. Could this be the school where Khan and wise men were trained? What is clear is the connection between ether ability and control, the mental power which allows the use of air rods or ship bombs, and though it isn't mentioned explicitly, the aggression brought on by artificial means, whether as drive or as that hateful narrative with which Dominia has been brainwashed. Back in Nortun, we see Faye brought to the champ's room by Rue Cohen. From her, we hear of Rico's crash into the Kaiser's box at the arena, evidently an unsuccessful assassination attempt, crudely concealed as an accident. Breaking the alphabet in a way many games seem to do, as champ, you are granted rank S privileges. This is apparently a reference to the Japanese grading system where S represents the highest excellence. Still, there's no S block in town. Instead, it's suggested that you go visit the residential A block and the central administrative district. Free in name and reality. As Satan helpfully points out, Faye nevertheless knows he can't leave town without getting Veltal back. So once more, Hammer heads out scouting information, leaving Latina to pass along his message. Meet at the Wildcat Bar in A Block. Things there look much the same as in the criminal district. The suspicious characters, the general squalor. Only instead of criminals hunting sewer monsters and drowning their sorrows, you'll find soldiers training and stocking up on liquid courage. In the barracks, 
there's one lecturing on how to get in and out of gears. Actually, it's critical for you to remember now that you're going to have gear at your disposal again. And no one seems to mind the reference to buttons, as if everyone were using the same controller the player is to maneuver through the world. Hop down the chimney of the toilet to the nurse's house, where your arrival via the bathroom elicits some understandable consternation. But Satan, ever suave, smooths things over, introducing himself as Faye's guardian. But who is the doctor back in the prison block, then? Well, sounds like the nurse will have to head back there once she's done helping you out of this latest scrape. Secret knock, the presence of an old lady in the back room, add to the parallels with the information-gathering chapter from Ave, recalled as well by the kid whose sister is some bald guy's fiancée. If it's Vanderklom, he means, the plot would be thick indeed. Still, Kislev never takes on quite the same vitality and depth as its desert neighbor, somehow. The burden of this, in my opinion, falls chiefly to the presence of Hammer. As pointed out, he's a sort of pseudo-Satan. And the absence of a character who would correspond to Margie. If anything, it might be Rico's mother who could have supplied this emotional role but her absence from the story, except for the barest sketches, renders Rico's arc much less impactful than Bart's, unfortunately. The Empire is also deficient in the limited town areas to explore. There's nothing that would correspond to Dazil, much less to the pirate's hideout. And so this leaves it without kind of being filled in as a country which feels remotely as real. What about a chance to have explored the ancient reactor we hear so much about and get some sense of the history of Kislev, the way we learn about the Fatima dynasty? But to most players, I suppose even the time we do spend in the capital probably already feels like too much. Instead of the hide-and-seek and carnival games, there is at least one minor side quest available here if we want to take advantage of our freedom. Our old friend Big Joe, giving no indication that he recognizes Faye, but then perhaps he's on one of his benders, is guarding the alley beside the bar. For 5,000 G, he'll move aside, allowing you to see the something really interesting he claims is back there. If you pay up, he entices you further back to the dead end of the alley, then runs off, crowing at his success at having swindled you. Another important lesson to treasure alongside wise man's about mass, and more or less about the same topic, that of clever timing, of mind over matter. But there's also a tangible reward for undergoing it that will be gained a little later. There in the Wildcat, you can get in the waitress's way. You can hear about the Mole tribe and the Dragon tribe, a little bit of Romeo and Julietery. But there's no sign of Hammer yet. So if you haven't already done so, you should take the opportunity to visit the Kaiser at the Capitol building, with its curious rose coloring and aerodynamic shape at the center of the drab neutron. Rico arrives right after Fado's. We see how he climbs into the duct system, 
an ability which it would have been tremendous to be able to use when he's in your party. But if that was ever even considered, it must have gone the way of Satan's sophistry, straight to the cutting room floor. Exploring the compound a bit before meeting with its master, you, as Fay, can walk freely through the strategy room, where a holographic image of the airship from Chrono Trigger, the Goliath, occupies the soldiers and engineers. They look forward to its completion and the swift end of the war that's promised by its invincible power. One of them even asks you, tauntingly, what do you suppose is the point of a bridge, as in a flight deck, a cockpit, in an admin building? That'll have to remain a mystery for now. Others, either obliquely or directly, one of them having taken in a stray dog from the outskirts, refer to Lahan, and down past that cheerful dog being cuddled in the stairwell, the storerooms have a tricky crane game which can allow you to reach the corner where a battler is hiding behind some crates, along with a power magic item, helpful for any ether users who might be joining your party soon. When you're ready to move along, take the elevator on its sideways jogging path. Upstairs, the lost wife's room is blocked by a pair of guards. The Kaiser is in his room playing the organ as usual, attended by an elder who mentions that lost wife. This interjection of a story about her is so abrupt as to be clumsy, and the game really plays this up in what happens next. The Kaiser proposes Faye should join him, but before he can explain what for, Rico falls, soot-covered, eyes popping out from the ceiling comically interrupting the scene, only to run out again, taking the camera with him, with the Kaiser calling him a mutant. He's not with you, he asks, to which Faye can only reply at a loss, no. <laughs> Chased out and dashing down the hall, Rico comes to the other room, tricks the guards, who bizarrely seem not to recognize him, and he finds that the supposedly locked door opens to his touch. Inside the opulent room, with its smell and its furniture and its mirror, which we look at through Rico's eyes, a kind of wave effect that distorts things, but not so much as when we saw through Redrum's perspective. This all triggers a memory of his childhood. The flashback comes in waves. Each time, the child Rico repeats a little more of the word mother to weed into his conversations with her. And the distant promise, the faraway promise theme, the music box plays in the background. The three scenes all take place in the same dilapidated room, tracking this other other mother's deterioration, and Rico's growing self-awareness. He asks about his father, who she says is a great man, and whose footsteps he'll follow. He worries about her sickness, much as he tells him not to. And he wonders about the difference the other kids point out between him and they, with his wild hair and his wicked nails. Finally, as the mob outside calls for him to come out, mother finally passes away, so frail at the end 
as to not even show up in her little bed, she leaves Rico desolate, and presumably this leads to his blocking out the trauma until it all comes back to him, recalled by the room's surroundings, its familiar smell, so that his mother and the Kaiser's lost wife are one and the same, and her death would have been around the time of the riots mentioned by the Nissan nuns at the orphanage 15 years ago. Does the Kaiser hate mutants so much because deep down he knows? He must. His eyes, sorry, his ears are a little pointy. As she says at one point, God have mercy on this child. When he comes back to himself, though, Rico insists to Faye and seemingly to himself as well, insists he should forget about it. You can check the bureau under the mirror for the memento chain, also called the memento locket, which only Rico can equip. You can revisit Sigmund's practice room for his set of knight's mail. There's apparently a metronome minigame there too, which can reward your ludicrous mastery of timing, surely beyond even Wiseman's skill. Again, the implication of Rico's being able to enter the room which was protected by a DNA lock and the tidbit that the Kaiser's wife was a child when she left could not be clearer. And yet Sigmund mutters that the door must have malfunctioned. The parallels with Faye's troubled childhood, too, should be obvious. And yet none of this is discussed. Kaiser hurries off, bidding you consider his proposition. And Rico led away, passive, under arrest. It's Hammer time. That is, time to meet Hammer. But he runs up before you actually reach the bar, shouting news for anyone to hear. And to the player's gratification, Faye seems ready to thrash him, but holds back once he finally shuts up. They move their talk to the nurse's house, where Hammer addresses her as Sis, and he shares what he's learned. The way to the gear dock where Veltal is being kept is either through the battle arena, closed following the attempt on the life of the Kaiser, or by the supply train access. The battlers intercept you there, taking up Rico's cause in the champ's room. Layered on top of the personal issues we've seen with him are all sorts of muddled political machinations between the ethos manipulating Rico, and the Kaiser with his anti-demi-human hard line. But the upshot of it is that they need face help to save Rico from public execution in the arena of all places. The cruelty of such a punishment of a former champ can't be good politically for the Kaiser, and yet perhaps he's betting on the citizenry being just that fickle. Rico's unaccountable loyalty to the prisoners becomes all the more remarkable in the light of this betrayal of him by all but a couple of his former cronies. And then Faye, who downplays the heroism by noting that it's on their way to rescue Rico, along with Feltal, anyhow. The next supply tray runs that very night, the time represented as passing in sleep. Now, 
when Faye sleeps, sometimes Satan talks to his emperor. And so Satan should know that the purge is coming that same night, unless his communication with Cain this time is somehow limited. Anyhow, we know that the stakes for this night are even higher than Faye realizes. The suspense is accentuated by the Amazoness at the top of the train observation tower, who just can't bring herself to go to the arena, even to maintain her cover. And the drama is ratcheted up when, as if jumping onto the moving train weren't enough, something causes it to shake violently, and then the connectors between the cars start coming undone. Could Faye's comment about the mischievous punks actually refer to kids putting stuff on the tracks? Or is this the heat-sensitive technology that we've heard about activating to protect someone who's trying to stow away on the train? Anyway, having jumped aboard, and jumped up to the locomotive, Satan then advises you to jump off to the access point. This last leap is mercifully automatic. Below, in the maze of ventilation shafts, storage rooms, and guard rooms preceding the underground gear dock proper, we spy on a handful of interactions among the guards, which prove to be instrumental for reaching your goal. There, Typically bored with their work and intrigued by the expected entertainment, the ex-champ matched up with the beast. They hold the key card, so it's up into the ducks for you. You can keep track of their movements by peeking through the grates or just wander through the maze. Either way, you'll need to snag the master key card that's left on its shelf. And next to it, you can take the frame HP-30. It's able to be equipped to Weltall though not to Heimdall for some reason, though they are equally inaccessible at this point, I should think. As Satan points out, this crucial piece of equipment signals that henceforth you'll be allowed to restore gear HP during battle, albeit for a hefty fuel cost. You might also find the One Guard's secret mini-gear figurine, at which he immediately bustles in, appalled that he could have forgotten it, and even more so, to find you holding it. My super, ultra, great, delicious, excellent, dynamite, bomber, special, DX, beautiful, wonderful, ultimately rare, by complete, merging, undefeated, transforming, I was going to put it in a glass case in my home, priceless mini-gear. This is the only indication that anyone might think to set off an alarm about the intruders. But it also suggests a kinship with the game's creator, who was, not surprisingly, frequently to be seen fiddling with his mech figurines. By all accounts, very much one of the keys, anyhow, to his inspiration for the game. And what should you win from this battle but an evasion ring? Certainly, evasion is what I take as one of the chief virtues of this game, and the toys it's based on. A sophisticated form of evasion, if you will. This ring is, if anything, even more valuable than the frame HP equipment, since a character wearing it seems to enjoy its protection even while in a gear, which spares you from damage you might otherwise take, and presumably need to heal. We should also note that the Kislev soldiers are, pound for pound, far superior to their Adva com uh, comrades. Wisely, they use swords instead of puny guns, and they slash through combinations to the tune of a 
good hundred or so damage points. Even the mechanics you run into prowling the vents are quite as mighty, summoning huge wrenches to clonk into Fay and Satan, and more of the red bats can boggle you with their screeches. All in all, this is an area that you'll hurry through if you can. Once you reach the dock, you'll have to rotate the gears through in their lifts to find Veltal, but you're safe at least from random encounters. And you can tune him up one more time at the gear shop before the series of boss battles to come. Wandering alone over the sands of the arena, as Faye was before in the desert looking for Satan, Rico broods on the prospect of battling using only his body. He seems resigned, but he's still alarmed when the ground begins to shake with the Rancar's approach. But that's followed swiftly by the sound of a gear in flight. Faye's combat here with the beast echoes his earlier rescue of Ellie in the forest, the piece of damseling which the ex-champ resents in the most forceful manner. Dismissing his lie about escaping and just happening to swing by this way, Rico sees through the coincidence and refuses Faye's offer of help. Desperately, Faye tries to persuade him, but it's only when yet another vibration shakes things, this time coming from the sky, that they get moving again. In a set piece, which relies entirely on the game's unaided graphics, so that it looks a bit like an old arcade game, only in three dimensions, we see the city by night, lit by the blue lances of anti-aircraft beams, the assault ships above headed inexorably for their target. One stricken vessel comes down in a blaze, and a whole segment of the city goes dark. Satan sees their peril, guessing that the real target is the power plant. Faye decides at once to try to push them off course, while the dock, as is his wont, helps the evacuation. All this Rico watches with the sort of indecision we have learned to associate with Faye showing how far he has come to have become the model for someone else to learn from in this way. Up in the sky, Gevler recognizes in Veltal the Ave Pirate. Rank is the one speaking for them this time instead of Vance. He wants to fight as a matter of pride, not about the mission, while understanding that Ellie has something more than the mission too going on with this pirate. Taking on the Gebler guys one at a time. From their speed and power, it's clear they too have gotten tougher. But as long as you've taken the time to upgrade your gear, there should be no contest. Back down in the burning neighborhoods, people are running down the stairs. Rico watches, undecided, self-deprecating, as Faye's voice rings in his memory. Even you must have things to do. This paradox of this strong homebody who hates the place where he's remained far longer than he needed to, comes to its breaking point. Unfortunately, he can take this tension out on the invaders. As Veltal prepares to battle the two wand knights at once, hopefully you're wearing your beam coat, Steer joins and proves plenty fast as well as a heavy hitter. Confronted by Vierge next, sending Rico ahead, Faye and Ellie's agon continues. He thinks it's a simple matter. She can leave the military. Whereas she reiterates that it's her duty 
and she can't. It's something like her very identity, in fact, and she envies his freedom to choose, whereas he envies her sureness. He has no place without Bart and his crew. All he has is that freedom that everyone keeps telling him he has. But clearly he's chosen her after all. And if she really believes in that miraculous efficacy of his freedom, their place, their path, must be together. The way that Faye puts it is more pointed, that she had better join him, if it's true that she doesn't enjoy fighting. The lost and broken musical theme, called Shattering Egg of Dreams, plays as he shows her the carnage up close. Fighting for others, even if they're lost, is not nothing, it's something. That seems to be the only answer to nihilism when you get down to it. And it's reciprocal, for the others are fighting for him. Satan, and even Hammer, and even Rico. Ellie finally has to choose. And now that it's been put in these terms, the choice is clear. The best the game can do to dramatize the struggle still going on within her is naturally to have you fight one more boss. So the sentimentality of all this is a little undercut by the uh, banter with Dominia and her gear fused into a part of the ship bomb Hecht that fires its rapid ear rods and then summons a massive one which takes multiple turns to charge up and then attacks you for heavy damage but your HP and fuel have been restored before the fight somehow. And by the time that giant earrod launches, you'll have almost finished her off. As a prize, you might pick up a valuable HP drive. As the concrete representation of that growth we've noted, for all the sinister side effects the drive is repeated to have, it doesn't seem to have any of them when you do use it. At last, the sight of fleeing child and his mother is what convinces her, and Ellie joins in the struggle above to divert the bomb. She joins late, perhaps, but as a result, she outlasts either of the others. It's better than doing nothing, she replies, to Faye's plea to get to safety, once the bomb is headed for a residential district rather than for the reactor, and once his gear is unable to do more. She replies to him with a version of his own words, which she has made her own. But finally her gear too gives out, and with the Nissan theme playing, there's a wrenching slow-mo sequence of her falling, the moment hanging as if frozen in time. And in that fraught, religious moment, a shining star appears in the distance. The explosion engulfs her as a familiar gear is glimpsed, swooping past, shielding Vierge with a wing, and possibly unscathed. The dark gear doesn't respond to her wondering question. It is graphs, surely, and yet those wings we have not seen unfurled before unmistakably recall the angelic statues of Nisan. Shattering Egg of Dreams comes on once more with its music box intro reprising a familiar phrase 
its tender duet between pizzicato and bowed strings and a flute descant take shape as the love theme that always was in Potentia. In place of the gear that saved her, Ellie sees Zeltalder, Faith, in tears, lifts her up from the burning wreckage, his voice coming in over the radio, unable to understand how she could have survived, and that Ellie should be asking forgiveness of him. Truly moving moment, one that's built up to in many ways by what has come before, also one we'll see continue to build into something still greater and what follows. Back in the nurse's house with the barred door, back to reality as it were, worrying again about how to get out of the unconquered city. That airship, Goliath, turns out to be in the depths of the same facility that Ellie infiltrated to steal Veltal. So stealing that airship will be your next mission. If indeed Sigmund can't resist this chance to counterattack, it could annihilate the Desert Kingdom if you don't. The prospect of working with him after his treatment of Rico seems to be dismissed out of hand. There's a couple of interesting interactions left before we close the chapter. First, Hammer has a whispered conversation with Ellie. It's never made explicit, but his mumbling to himself about a key and his behavior at the Goliath facility suggests that he is getting her to let him handle the infiltration, though she was the one who'd broken in before. Visually, of course, this reminds us of the whispered secret between Sigmund and the masked woman, so that such secrets bookend the Kislev chapters of the game. The second interaction, potentially more mysterious, potentially total bunk, comes with our man, Big Joe. Confront him about the trick that he played before, and here's what he has to say for himself. Hey, hey, that's just a minor thing. Being picky will only turn you into a boring adult. You gotta be, how would you say, more open and deep like the sea. Well, setting that aside, you need to listen to my super muchacho information. Just channeling Edward James almost and stand and deliver, he goes on. From the looks of it, you're all in a group, right? In that case, you need to change your party. If you go to the Wildcat Pub, there'll be a new waitress. If you ever want to change your party members, just remember to stop by there. Oh, one more thing. There was a deep, deep reason, as deep as the deepest ocean, for doing what I did. As a way of making up for it, go back to that back street one more time and search the area. You might just find something good, for real. Hey, what's up? Huh? Me? I'm always the cool and nice guy. The wind, cloud, world... They are all calling out to me. We'll meet again. Adieu. So there you go. A kind of mockery or parody, or is it kind of perfection of the many object lessons we've been treated to in this episode, whether of Rico's loyalty, wise man's cleverness, Satan's courtesy, Faye's love, Ellie's redemption. We have Big Joe again. 
always the cool and nice guy, with his reasons deep as the deepest ocean, where he'll end up, I think, towards the end of the game, pointing us to the bar, that, like the bar where we got the mermaid's tear, after all, that bar where we'll be able to select our traveling party, now that Rico's rejoined, and three are the most we can travel with at once, and also pointing us out to the wider world. Till next time.